Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I am uh, here to uh, discuss this weekend's events in the West Bank, specifically in the town of Huara. Uh, I'm joined, uh, this is going to be a two-part interview. I'm joined in the first part of the interview by Jalal Abu Khater, Palestinian writer from Jerusalem. Uh, we'll have links to his Twitter and website in the show description if you want to see more of his work. Jalal, thank you very much uh, on very short notice, I should, I should add, for coming on the program. Thank you for having me, Derek. So I want to talk about what happened, the settler attack on Huara, um, the, the shooting that preceded it, just basically Sunday's events. But uh, I will leave it to you to put this in, in a context. Obviously, we could go all the way back to the 19, 1948 or beyond uh, to really put this in context. But what do people need to know uh, to understand what happened on Sunday? <clears throat> okay, so if anyone's been following, they'd notice that uh, there's a trend and increasing settler violence over the past, let's say, decade. Uh, settler violence means terror, basically terrorism. Uh, you have settlers who would either set up outposts illegally, even according to Israeli law. They would have an agenda to advance their settlement enterprise and keep taking over land, even those um, which are not... Uh, public or are not uh, owned by them in, in any way. So they just want to force their settler inter settler enterprise over our lands. So the settler terrorism is part of, it's, it's a mechanism for them to expand settlements and to ensure they have full control over what they call Judea and Samaria, what we, we call here the occupied West Bank. Of course, all settlement activity is illegal by international law. Uh, the fact that they're transferring Israeli civilians uh, into the occupied West Bank it is a, considered a war crime under the Geneva, Geneva Convention. So what we've seen over the past 10 years is this settler violence increasing. It, the trend is increasing. And um, I think it, it's, what's the term to use? Uh, it's increasing so fast and it was so noticeable that just now it's exploding in our faces, but it's not coming from a vacuum. Basically, there is an environment of impunity. There is this Zionist regime that rules by uh, supremacy for Jewish uh, settlers, Jewish residents, Jewish citizens, whatever. This regime is based on ethnic supremacy. So without speaking much about what's going on elsewhere in the territories or in Jerusalem, what's going on in the West Bank is there are a population of settlers. They are treated as Israeli citizens by the state, and they uh, they receive their Israeli citizenship card. They are able to move freely. They get subsidized housing in many settlements, which basically started to appear in the 80s and, and onwards. Um, they take over land. They take over private Palestinian land. They strategically build their settlements to uh, stop the expansion of uh, towns and villages in the West Bank. Today, their pro proclaimed purpose is to take over, uh, sorry, to, to ensure that Palestinians are, are confined within Area A. Area A is considered to be 20% or less, sorry, less than 20% of the West Bank. It's where the Palestinian city centers are basically located. The settlers are wanting to take over what's called Area C and parts of Area B. That constitutes way over 60% of the occupied West Bank. They think the settler movement is the only way to ensure Jewish supremacy over this land. So 
settler violence has been increasing because the state allows it to happen in impunity. You don't hear um, that settler arsonists who would go down to burn a mosque or to burn houses or to cut down trees. You don't hear that they get arrested or they get investigated as often. Settlers often commit heinous crimes, such as the, the burning of the Dawabsha family in Qusra in uh, uh, 2015. Uh, Ali Dawabsha, a two-year-old baby, and his parents were all burned alive inside the house. There was only one survivor um, who was burnt but survived the, the, the crime. It was in 2015, so it was a very... Um, it became a headline news and they were forced to investigate and uh, there were arrests. I don't think it was satisfactory, of course, because um, the people who were arrested, the settlers who were arrested, they had people like Etamar Bengvir on their defense. People like Etamar Bengvir from the settler movement would become, eight years later, the Minister for National Security. Um, there's, a, there's a member of Knesset, for example, his name is Tzvi Sukot. He is the most recent addition to Israeli Knesset. I think 10, 10, 12 years ago, he was con- accused of uh, having burnt a mosque and having participated in the so-called price tag attacks. Today, he is in the Knesset. He is just wearing a suit. He is the same uh, violent settler, uh, the hilltop youth he, uh, settler, but today he's in the Knesset. Uh, we've also got Petzalel Smotrich, who is Minister of Finance and also Governor for the West Bank. He, he just recently uh, procured the powers of... Um, the civil administration over the West Bank. So he would be the one to determine what gets built settlements-wise, what gets demolished, Palestinian construction, homes, and he gets to determine the budgets to be spent on the West Bank, and he gets to determine infrastructure and roads, and of course development for the settlements. So we have settlers, literal settlers, and most of them are violent and had recent uh, history of uh, terrorism. They are in the government right now, and they are setting the policy so the settler terrorism that we've seen increasing over the past years, every would trend to be like, this is the most violent year in regards to settler terrorism in 2022. Uh, 2023 is already trending to be even higher and on a bigger scale. We've always been, see- been seeing situations where settlers would come in to burn homes at night or to burn trees and to destroy cars and vandalism. Uh, they would leave a, a racist remarks in, in places and and destroy cars and throw rocks at Palestinian traffic. This has always been happening, and it's been a daily uh, occurrence in the West Bank. Everyone who lives in the West Bank and travels between cities would experience the settler terrorism at some point. What we saw in Hawara is perhaps the most natural uh, phase of, 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 this, uh, of this violence that's been allowed to continue in an environment of impunity, um, no one is being held accountable. So, of course, you're going to have hundreds of settlers coming down to Hawara vowing to take revenge. Of course, we can start talking about the events of the day, but we have to recognize that the environment of impunity allows for such a pogrom to happen, the one we saw in Hawara, the lack of accountability for, for settler violence against Palestinians, is because the regime treats the Palestinians, the native indigenous people on, on this land, as lesser humans. You, you can't think of it any, any other way. A soldier does not stop a settler from harming a Palestinian, but a soldier is willing to execute a Palestinian and shoot them right there and then if the Palestinian in, in any way or form yells or threatens or, or seems to be threatening or even perhaps driving a car and by mistake, a Palestinian would make a mistake or would drive too fast or too slow. The soldier might shoot and kill the Palestinian because 
they felt threatened. And this is the policy. If the soldiers feel like they want to shoot a Palestinian, the policy is open fire and ask questions later. When it comes to settlers, we never, almost never see an Israeli uh, law enforcement or soldier or police actually taking it seriously, taking this violence seriously. They would never harass or treat the settlers like when they would treat the Palestinians. Uh, we're ruled by two sets of laws in the West Bank. It's the most clear case of apartheid possible. Uh, the soldier would tell us that they cannot arrest or apprehend the settler. Only the police can, but then there's barely any police in the West Bank. It's mostly, mostly military. The military would shoot at Palestinians, would arrest Palestinians. They raid the homes of Palestinians at night. They, they blockade villages and towns. They do all the measures they can to control and subjugate the Palestinians, but they never take any of those measures against Israeli settlers in the West Bank. The settlers continue to roam free. Uh, for example, what happened in Hawara before the pogrom, there was a shooting attack which killed two settlers um, in Har Bracha. Har Bracha is a settlement just over Hawara, maybe just a, a, a few, maybe five miles away from, from Hawara. Har Bracha like settlement of Yitzhar and other settlements in the area south of Nablus are centers of, of set, very violent settlement activities. Around them, you'd find outposts, uh, extensions that are illegal according to Israeli law, but it's, it's their method of expanding those settlements. And all those settlements have a really bad history of really terrorizing the local population in order to keep the Palestinians off the land, to keep the Palestinians confined in certain spaces and not allow for any kind of uh, expansion for the population, perhaps, and not allow the Palestinians to actually uh, make use of the land, agricultural land of their villages. Those, those settlements are built strategically in the heart of Palestinian areas in the south of Nablus area, and they're very violent. So it was very uh, predictable for such a scenario to happen. The violence against settlers is because of years of impunity and years of constant settler terrorism that is unimpeded. Um, there's no one to defend the Palestinians. You, you, you can't you can't pretend that the Israeli military is ever going to be uh, responsible to defend the Palestinians against the violence the violence of the settlers. Uh, Beit Salem, Israeli NGO itself, has a really good report. It's called State Business, and it's literally talking about how the settler violence is state business because. It is the only way that Israelis can build and expand the settlements um, and keep growing the settlement enterprise in the West Bank. Uh, like when you hear in the news that outpost was legalized in the West Bank, that outpost could be like, uh, there could be like one or two or maybe 10 settlers who are residing there. They built an outpost and they would conduct their own campaigns of violence in the nearby area and they would take over the land by force. No one can resist that because if a person approaches that outpost, they might get shot. And it's been happening a lot in many cases near Ramallah, near Nablus, near Jericho, where Palestinians are harassed in their communities. Uh, any Palestinian resisting might get shot. So people just avoid uh, confronting those outposts and then they get legalized by the government of Israel, maybe after five or ten years. When they get legalized, they get more houses, they expand and they take over more land. And the Palestinian feels suffocated and it's like an existential threat. So we only see settlements expanding around us. Uh, the land is disappearing. Hiking, running, doing sports in the nature is also risky. Uh, settlers attack Palestinians wherever they're found outdoors. And it's been only increasing in the past years. So what happened in Hawara is just 
the final stage of where we're at. And it could be a warning for something way more horrible to come because there's no one to defend us, the Palestinians. We're occupied. The military is obviously and very clearly complicit in the settler violence. The state is very clearly benefiting from this case of settler violence. And the fact that they're allowing it to happen, the fact that zero people were arrested after the pogrom in Hawara, zero people were arrested. This fact alone is enough to tell you that this is state business. This is Israel's way of expanding its colonial project and making sure that the West Bank would never end up uh, in a a Palestinian independent state, perhaps. The point about impunity is so important. I mean, you mentioned settlers throwing rocks at Palestinian traffic. This is literally something that gets Palestinians shot, uh, throwing rocks at at Israeli cars. Um, It's shocking, uh, the, the... kind of dual nature, the dual track justice that goes on here. Uh, and I, I think uh, people also need to understand, you know, uh, again, uh, you know, comment on this, the, the, to the extent that we, that these kinds of stories about settler violence filter into Western media, it's always the, the most heinous incidents. It's, you know, killing people, burning houses, but this is, this is, this happens on so many levels. I mean, it, it gets down to the level of, uh, you know, chopping down olive trees, which, you know, you think, oh, well, olive trees, whatever, that's somebody's livelihood. This is another way of kind of stealing the land, making sure that that's unproductive uh, for the people who own it. And it just, you know, th- these kinds of affronts go on, it seems like, on, a, on an almost daily basis. I, I witnessed this uh, this case because every, every season, olive harvest season, I participate with people to go on and harvest olives in lands that are... Um, the, the the farmer would not will want to go alone. Uh, the land would be near an outpost or behind a fence, or perhaps uh, it's just risky for them to be alone because of the constant fear of uh, being attacked by settlers. Uh, Palestinian farmers know that when they're attacked, they have to defend themselves on their own. There won't be a soldier coming to their rescue. There won't be police coming to their rescue or taking their complaints. If they get attacked, they will get attacked. So they have to be able to defend themselves. And people are not really, you know, it it gets exhausting. It gets really exhausting. So every year I've been participating in this olive harvest and I've seen cases where, you know, it is their livelihood. Those olive trees are, could be the entire livelihood for an entire family. Um, And I've seen a case in a place called Kisan, a village called Kisan, south of Bethlehem. Uh, When we arrived to the, the plot of land where the olives were we were surprised that they were all burnt up but not through fire they were all um i, th- I think it was a toxin that was sprayed on on the trees so the the trees were all dead it was like a big plot and the farmer there told us of course it's a very it's a almost arid area um and the farmer was telling us that he's been spending 20 years on those, uh, on those, in this olive grove, twenty years working it and nursing those young olive trees, and at in one fell swoop, settlers come down from an outpost which we could see uh, right there near Kisan, and they came and they destroyed those trees. So the farmer didn't realize this the night before because when we arrive, the farmer is uh, willing to go to that land because they feel secure. They have company. When we arrived, the trees were gone. Uh, people knew that the settlers did this and settlers saw that Palestinians were in the land where the olive trees are. Confrontations occurred after. 
rocks were being thrown back and forth. And there was a very horrific video, actually, because the settlers would all come down unmasked. Uh, the Palestinians left the area. There was a Jewish woman, 70-something years old. She was with the Palestinians to come to document the harvest. She thought that she's safe from this uh, gang of settlers who are attacking the Palestinians and throwing rock from the outpost. Uh, there was the images in Kisan were of this like old lady, 70-something years old, a Jewish woman getting beaten up by like four or three, three or four settlers. And her camera was stolen and she was uh, evacuated later to the hospital with so many bruises and broken ribs because the settlers do not discriminate who they're attacking. They're attacking anyone who's coming to help Palestinians maintain their resilience on the land. Anyone who helps a Palestinian to stay on the land and to harvest and cultivate the land is a target. This is a constant ha- occurrence in Masafar Yatta in the, in the south. Uh, settlers would attack Palestinian communities. Of course, agriculture is vital. It's vital and water is vital. So the Israeli military perhaps can stop the water from coming, but the settlers would go in and just destroy the crop entirely. So they both work hand in hand to keep the Palestinians off the land. This has been happening all over the West Bank, especially in the northern Jordan Valley, in Masafar Yatta, and all around the villages uh, in the center of the West Bank, near Salfit and near Nablus. Briefly, because I, I want to get back to the issue of impunity on a, on a different scale, but briefly, what do we know at this point in terms of the damage that was done in Hawara, casualties, uh, and what's been the response from Palestinian organizations, from the Palestinian Authority, from Hamas, from other groups, uh, has there been much of a response? Okay, so what happened in Hawara is the Jewish settlers called for revenge and uh, perhaps three or four hours before the event. Uh, Hawara was under a blockade. No one could enter or exit. Anyways, it was under curfew. The Palestinians there were anticipating such an attack. And then around 7 p.m., hundreds of settlers are walking in on foot into Hawara and you can see the videos and you can see the reports by Israeli journalists who were present there that the military and police vehicles were plenty and they were always passing by the settlers and they would see them chanting revenge and walking into Hawara. They were escorting them into the Hawara area because they didn't want to obstruct this, what, what they called protest, even though they know the intentions were violent. The settlers were able to uh, wreak havoc uh, and create chaos in the area which was secured to them by the Israeli military. You know, the people who live in Hawara are going to defend their own homes, throwing rocks, perhaps that's the the, the, the maximum they can do. There is no weapon to defend your home except a rock, or perhaps uh, if anyone approaches, you can hit them. But the fear is the settlers are armed and they're accompanied by soldiers. So the settlers had free reign to terrorize the communities, the, the houses which were on the periphery of Hawara, uh, the soldiers would keep Palestinians at bay, basically shooting tear gas, shooting sun grenades, and firing live ammunition at any Palestinian who pokes their head even from their house or by from an alley or anything. So the streets were empty from Palestinians. The settlers went on this rampage. Uh, they burnt, um, I think the number was 35 homes, uh, completely charred, black, uh, Cars, over 100 vehicles. Actually, I think the number is even more because there was a major scrapyard that was actually burned. So lots of private vehicles that were burned, uh, perhaps 200. Uh, I think one person was killed in Zatara, 
his name is uh, I forgot his name, but he's a thirty-seven-year-old uh, sheikh. He's an he's an he's a he's a volunteer actually who was in Syria, just uh, sorry in Turkey, just uh, two weeks ago for the earthquake. He was volunteering with the Red Crescent in Turkey, and he is from Zatara. He was shot during the attack. I, I read the report that he, his last words were to his family saying, don't worry, stay at home, take care of the children, it will be fine. He just went out to check what's going on because the people in Zatara, the village of Zatara, were anticipating an attack. Shots were fired by the settlers. This man was shot, and I think it was a critical shot in the, in the abdomen, and he was killed. There were several other injuries in Hawara and in Burin, but thankfully no one was, no one else was killed except this 37-year-old man from Zatara. Uh, damage is is beyond the pale because you're talking about hundreds of cars which were burnt, homes which were completely burnt, and people have no kind of support and no kind of defense. Uh, zero arrests on the, on the settler side. That's important to, to note. I think on the, on the night itself, they detained six people. All were released uh, after short questioning. Uh, two were detained because they were charged with assaulting an Israeli commander and they too were released to house arrest. So even those who were detained because they assaulted an Israeli soldier were taken to house arrest. No one remains in prison. There are videos that show that the settlers are burning, setting fire and putting logs and wooden pallets in front of people's homes to burn it. And they would take their time, two, three, four minutes. And you see in the background of the, video, of the CCTV camera video, you see the Israeli military jeeps around you see Israeli police coming by. You don't see any soldier or police stop, like intervening to, to stop the settler from burning this home. We saw this complicity. The Israeli soldier is only an escort and a, and a bodyguard for those settlers. The settlers had free reign to wreak havoc in a large part of Hawara. They burnt the place. They prayed. And then... They came back the next day as well. Like it's just it's never ending because that's the the, the system of uh, Jewish supremacy that we're facing in the West Bank. And ha- what's the response been from the Palestinian Authority and from other uh, groups in the, in the West Bank? I think um, the Palestinian Authority is trying to use its most uh, the strongest terms to condemn such an act. Uh, I think. The PA minister, the most senior minister, Hussein uh, Sheikh, was he, he described those uh, the settler mob as Holako's uh, new hordes, basically. You know, Holako, because historically they would come in and raise and pillage and burn uh, villages. So he used that term to describe the attacking settlers. But at the same time, there is a responsibility for the PA to at least if it's not able to protect, to admit that it's not able to protect and to uh, find different means. But people are condemning this kind of action, but at the same time, we're not finding solutions because this, the protection from the Israeli military is not going to be uh, the case. It, it, it's not going to be what protects Palestinians from what's to come. People are predicting that this, what happened in Hawara, I saw in Haaretz, I think Gideon Levy was writing about uh, what happened in Hawara is foreshadowing Sabra and Shatila number two. Sabra and Shatila's massacre that happened in Lebanon, 1982, I believe, where uh, a Christian phalangist um, militias entered uh, Sabra and Shatila refugee camps after they were evacuated from all the armed people and they just started a massacre, a slaughter inside, while the Israeli army provided a perimeter and security for the militias to enter 
and conducted atrocities. So what we're, what we're seeing is foreshadowing such a scenario where those settlers who are determined on their twisted violence, ethnic supremacy, ideology, whatever Zionism is, they're determined to conduct their violence and they want to challenge the government. They want to force their hand to, to, to have revenge from the Palestinians. And the Israeli military is only providing them with logistical support, uh, security, escort. They're not really stopping this kind of violence. I've not really seen a condemnation, a very strong condemnation from anyone in the Israeli government. The Israeli government uh, statements all stated that Israelis should not take the law into their own hands. They didn't condemn the violence. They didn't condemn the, the fact that there are zero arrests. No one is calling for a huge investigation into what, into what, what went on because they don't want to upset literally half of the electorate which voted settlers into this government. The extreme right-wing settlers are in the government and it's because the election took place and the Likud, along with the right-wing factions, are now the major coalition in the, in the government. So there are no condemnations straight from the Israeli government. The presidency doesn't count because the president is not the government. Uh, the PA is in probably perhaps its worst position it can ever be in. And the statements from Western leaders, from um, the US State Department, for example, uh, Europe, Europeans, where they would describe Palestinian attack as, as terrorism, the Palestinian attack against settlers as terrorism, and not describe the mob violence where it involved hundreds of settlers and where Palestinian fatalities were recorded, they wouldn't describe that as terrorism. They would describe it as settler violence should decrease. But the fact that settler violence is only increasing is because of the impunity and lack of accountability. It is, it is what allows this violence to continue and to grow. And I fear for what could come next. So I don't want to keep you. I know it's uh, getting late where you are, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But um, I, I, I do want to sort of close maybe with uh, 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 the other aspects of the impunity that you're talking about. There's the impunity of the settlers, the impunity of Israeli security forces, the, the Israeli government. There's also an international impunity that Israel has to to act in this way to colonize, to, to continually expand the settlements despite rhetorical statements of opposition from the U.S. government and other uh, Western capitals. It, it's ne it never amounts to anything. It's always, uh, you know, eventually forgiven and everybody moves on. So uh, I wonder if, if you could talk just briefly about the international context of this. Is there anybody at this point standing up for the Palestinian cause uh, you know, with, with most Arab states having made their peace with Israel, uh, you know, looking to Iran or whatever the common threat is these days. Um, and, and, and what, if anything, could the international community do to stop what you're talking about? The, 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 the escalation of this to the point where we get to a, a, a real massacre of, and, and loss of human life, serious loss of human life. Of course, this environment of impunity has so many levels. And I think it's most ugly on this international uh, framework. The UN Security Council never fails to to act in many cases around the world. Of course, it's crippled with, when it comes to Russia and comes to Ukraine. But the the the, the 
general situation of the international, like, you know, Europeans would condemn what went on in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, the Americans would make strong statements. At the same time, when the exact same thing happens in Palestine, you don't see those condemnations. There was a submission, there was a proposal to submit a UN Security Council resolution uh, via, like, the UAE. Uh, the Palestinians were pushing for this resolution to condemn Israel's announcement to legalize 9,000 settlement units. Even when it comes to condemning such a blatant violation of international law, and when it comes to condemning something that the U.S. should condemn if they even care about a two-state solution, the Europeans should definitely back this kind of resolution. But even when it comes to that kind of statement of condemnation, the U.S. would provide Israel with this blanket um, support, uh, defending them in any case, even when they're so wrong, by suggesting that they would veto any kind of condemnation resolution. Uh, Palestinians are not even are not even even able to seek the ICC to intervene, the International Criminal Court. It's become the most complicated case to be taken to the International Criminal Court because of so much pressure international pressure. I've seen the Germans send statements to the ICC calling them not to investigate Israeli crimes in the West Bank because they're claiming that Palestine is not a state a member state of the Rome Statute. So the Germans would legally stop and block Palestinians from seeking uh, the, the legal recourse. The Americans would veto anything at the United, Security, uh, United Nations Security Council to defend Israel. Um, the UK government is proposing to pass a law against the boycott of Israel, uh, the boycott bill, sorry, it's called, which which would not allow any kind of public body or uh, contractor to be to hold a stance of boycotting, calling for the BDS movement, for calling for the boycott, divestment, or sanctions of Israel. So we're faced with like what what kind of impunity we we face here. It's it's really repeated in many different levels across the globe. The U.S. is shielding Israel. The EU is shielding Israel and continues to cooperate and provide money and support uh, mutual projects, scientific uh, uh, investments. No one is actually putting Israel, holding Israel accountable for the violations and the continued crimes. Uh, no one is allowing the Palestinians to seek uh, justice in, on the international forum, in the International Criminal Court, even the ICJ. It's facing such a blowback because the Palestinians requested an opinion on the occupation. So the impunity does extend to the entire globe because as long as those countries are allowing Israel to continue to behave this way, we're not going to face any. We're not going to see any difference. We're not going to see anything changing uh, course over here. Jalal Abulhatar, I want to thank you again for coming on the program uh, and, and helping us unpack what happened this weekend and the context around it. Uh, everybody stay tuned. We will have uh, Udi Greenberg uh, coming up in a moment here to talk about the Israeli government and, and the role that it's playing and what's happening. Thanks, Jalal. Thank you, David. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're back on the line. I'm Danny Bessner here with Derek, and we're excited to welcome back to the podcast my friend, Udi Greenberg. Udi is an associate professor of history at Dartmouth College, and he is uh, apparently our Israel desk. So, Udi, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. 
Um, so we're here, to, of course, to talk about what's been going on in Palestine recently. So why don't we just start at uh, the beginning, and, and you can maybe tell us a little bit about the relationship between the new Israel cabinet and settlements. Well, the Israeli cabinet and the Israeli coalition is strongly reliant on the settlements movement and the settlement party. The heads of the settler party who are even by the standard of the settler movement itself, among the most radical it had ever in history, have now reached the most powerful position that settlers have ever held in Israeli politics in the Ministry of Treasury and in the Ministry of Internal Security or the Police Ministry. Uh, Both those positions have enormous influence on the policymaking, both in Israel itself and in the occupied territories in Palestine, And both those um, ministers have made it pretty clear that they plan to use those positions in order to continue to empower and strengthen the settlement movements, and especially the capacity of settlers to operate freely in violence against Palestinian population without intervention of the Israeli military. So basic question, what is the goal here? The goal is the same, the goal that has always been, which is to break the Palestinian resistance to the Israel occupation and to enable the settlement movement to continue to expand, to take over more Palestinian territories, more Palestinian land, and to, to continue to expand the building of existing Israeli settlements. What is the military's role here and how does the military relate to the new cabinet? Um, forgive my ignorance, but what is the ideology of the Israeli military when it comes to the settlements and how does it relate to this cabinet? Right. So formally, the Israeli military is not political and not partisan. And formally, it's just executing the orders handed by the government. It itself does not take formal opinions or statements on the legality of the occupation, on policies regarding expansion or limiting the expansion of the uh, settlements and so on. Its job is to defend the settlers and formally also to defend the well-being of Palestinians who are subjects of the military occupation. Formally, the ro- part of the responsibility of the military is also to defend Palestinians from potential violent attacks by Israeli settlers. In practice, the Israeli military usually either does not um, defend Palestinians or actively participates in violence against Palestinians, providing cover for um basically settler militias. So um, in regard to how that connects to the riots in Hawara over the last few days, what happened there was a more extreme case of dynamics that has been the reality in the West Bank for many, many years, which is settler militias take over Palestinian territories or begin an act of collective violence against Palestinians, and the military either sits by and uh, does not intervene, or occasionally even actively um, soldiers participating in actual violence against Palestinians. Udi, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of this cabinet? Because there have been a couple of um, things that that Benjamin Netanyahu has done in constructing this cabinet that are unique. Uh, For one thing, uh, the Ministry of National or Internal Security, this this post that Itamar Ben-Gavir has received. As far as I know, that's never existed before. This is a brand new kind of conglomeration of uh, powers. And the the second thing, uh, 
that maybe you could comment on is the creation of this special office within the Ministry of Defense for the finance minister, Bitzelel Smoltrich, to oversee essentially the settlement movement uh, outside of what has typically been, uh, you know, the administration uh, under the, the Ministry of Defense, under the military. Right. So there are two issues here. The first, as you said, is the appointment of Itamar ben Gvir, who is a convicted terrorist and um, an open racist politician who called for the expulsion of Israeli Palestinians or the denial of their citizenship. And so I mean, he used to be on the very fringe of Israeli politics and has become a central figure over the last couple of years of the settler movements and now has been elevated by Benjamin Netanyahu to be the minister of um, internal security. His office existed before. Um, it, it's, it's in charge of policing. But as part of the coalition negotiations, the authority of this office has been expanded substantially and it is now in charge of many more policing bodies that used to be under the authority of the Ministry of Defense and other authorities. This kind of moving of authority between ministries is not unusual in um, Israeli politics. It's something that occasionally happens during negotiations over coalitions. But the extent to which this has happened during the creation of this current coalition is unprecedented. The amount of authority that has been transferred between ministries to the ministries that are in the hands of the settlers' movements and leaders, that has been unprecedented. In this regard, putting Itamar Ben-Gvir over such an immense authority that is unprecedented radicalization of Israeli politics and the power of settler movements. As to your second question about the authority of the head of the settler movement, uh, um, Bezalel Smotrich, in the Ministry of Defense, he is he has been appointed as the Minister of Treasury, which is considered the number three in the Israeli hierarchy of politics after the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs. But as part of the, negation, the recent negotiation for the creation of the coalition, he also took over the authority of the civil administration of the Israeli military occupation, which is in charge, especially of the management of anything regarding the life of both Jewish settlers and Palestinians that is not directly about security. So authorities about which land should be distributed to which municipality, where roads will be built, where transportation, public transportation will be managed. All of this used to be managed by the military, since this is formerly a military-held occupation. By international law, the State of Israel is not allowed to impose its own laws because that will be considered an an illegal annexation. Therefore, formally, all this uh, authority is in the hands of the Ministry of Defense and the IDF, the Israeli military. One of the major achievements of the settler movement as part of this negotiation that has been signed, the agreement has been signed, just a few days ago, is that from now on, this authority will be subjected to the Ministry of Treasury, which is run by a settler and not by the Ministry of Defense. Formally, that means, even though the um, the formal agreement says that this will not mean the uh, formal annexation of Palestinian territory into Israel, formally, that means that for the first time, the Israeli law through civil uh, uh, authority will be implemented in Palestinian territories, which means that it will be formally, according to the opponents of this agreement, 
human rights organization and other leftist groups in Israel. This means formally establishing an apartheid regime in Israel, in the Western Bank. It's a, I mean, it seems like a de facto annexation, but yeah, I think the other way to look at it is, is you formalized a two tier system of law basically in the West Bank. That, that's what its opponent said. I personally uh, question whether the implications are that far reaching in the sense that the Israeli military continues to have formal authority over some of those decisions by the agreement. Um, it just says that the Minister of Defense, if they want to overturn, and the IDF, if they want to overturn a decision made by the settlers, they will have to do so in writing, and they have to communicate it first to Bezalel Smortrich himself, who then gives the order on behalf of the IDF. So formally, legally, this probably does not change dramatically realities. It also leads to the question to what extent the formal legalism of how this operation works matters to a great deal. In reality, all Jewish settlers in the West Bank live under Israeli law and all Palestinians live under military rules that are set by the IDF and indirectly by the Israeli government. This is de facto, whether or not formally, is already a two-tier system, which some would call apartheid. So to what extent this change in legal authority matters is questionable. What it does mean, however, is that far more authority over the management of land and decision on what will be built and for whom on whose land, all of that will be moved from the hands of the IDF to the hands of the settlers themselves, which means that likely the process of dispossession of building on Palestinian territories and Palestinian lands, of expropriating private Palestinian land for building Jewish settlements, all of this will likely will be expanded substantially over the coming years. Udi, we talked about some of this stuff the last time you were on the program after this coalition was formed and we wanted to try and understand how it might function. But now that it has been functioning for a couple of months and you've had a chance to see it in operation, how much is Benjamin Netanyahu actually in control here? And how much is he under the control of the settler parties given his legal problems, given his personal need essentially on, on that, that front to remain prime minister and how much he's dependent on the settler parties to do that. Uh, how, how much is he really, you know, kind of calling the shots at this point, would you say? It's hard for us to tell from what it seems to me. I think that the analysis that claims that he's a weak prime minister who is um, operating by the will of his coalition members is a bit overblown. He is still by far the most political, uh, the most politically powerful figure in Israeli politics. He does, if he wishes to, he does have the authority to dissolve the coalition and to build a new coalition. I don't think that should he wish to, if he really wanted to um, force out the settler party and negotiate with the so-called central uh, or center-right parties that are currently in opposition, if he calls them to come to serve in the coalition, they will probably agree, is my guess. So I think that he's still very much in charge. I also don't think, unlike unlike some commentators, I don't think that his main motivation in this coalition and his attack on the judicial system is motivated mostly by his own personal um, calculation of trying to get out of corruption trials, which is ongoing. That is perhaps part of the calculation, but it seems to me that he's presiding over a much broader 
process of the radicalization of the Israeli right, which has happened in Hungary and happened in Turkey, and now is reaching Israel too, in which the right no longer fears the re- potential retribution of the center or the left, and therefore feels that it no longer needs the defenses that are provided by an independent judicial system. That is, had Netanyahu or his coalition members felt that in the near future there might be an election in which they lose power and the left will come to power, they will likely, I think, not try to dismantle the independent judiciary because they would fear the consequences would be turned against them. I think that they now, because they do not fear it, they feel confident enough to dismantle the independence of the judiciary. Um, And in this regard, I think that the policies that are led by Netanyahu are self-serving, but they're also in the service of a much larger political project of securing full dominance of the right in Israel for the foreseeable future. And in that is shared, this is an objective that's shared by ultra-Orthodox, by settlers, and by the uh, Likud party. I, I I think you're right. I mean, I agree with that. And I think it's gotten lost maybe in the events of the last couple of months, just how radical his last government was. I mean, this is a, a government that was a government that almost annexed the Jordan Valley. I mean, if it hadn't been for, uh, you know, I guess the Abraham Accords and, and right. the UAE and, and Bahrain kind of uh, insisting that he not embarrass them by doing that. I mean, he was he was close to, to taking steps like this uh, the last time around. And that was presumably a, a less radical government. But I, I, I do agree with that. And I, I guess the other thing I would ask here in, in terms of the, the rise of the far right or the, the intensification of the, the extremism in the Israeli government, uh, to what extent do you think there is an intentional uh, desire to provoke uh, more violence from the Palestinians because more violence from the Palestinians then begets harsher responses and allows this government to get away with uh, taking more and more, you know, doing more things that uh, would seem radical. I, I, I would liken it maybe to the uh, to Ariel Sharon provoking the second intifada for political aims. Now his were, you know, he wanted to be prime minister, basically. but, um, you know, but, but there are certainly aims here that would be maybe enabled by a, a greater level of violence, uh, just constant violence in the West Bank. Yeah, I mean, the question of the violence in the West Bank is a complicated one, because on the one hand, violence in the West Bank is one of the main campaigns on which Netanyahu and his supporters were running. The violence in the West Bank, the recent round of violence, began already under the previous coalition, and Netanyahu and his followers claimed that once they will come to power, they will be able to put an end to this violence. And in that regard, the intensification of violence is a sort of embarrassment. However, that said, the operating assumption of Netanyahu, of the settlers, um, leaders who are in his coalition and others, is that violence in the West Bank is in an, an inevitability that Palestinians are prone to violence and will always be violent. And therefore, the only appropriate response is to intensify violence in return. In this regard, I'm not sure that there is a calculated decision to provoke violence uh, in order to serve the domestic revolution that the right-wing coalition is um, currently unleashing. I think that the violence that is unleashed in the West Bank is part of the modus operandi of this government, regardless, since it assumes that violence is the nature of life in the West Bank and that the Israelis will always have to rely on violent repression 
in the West Bank as long as there are Palestinians there. How has the Israeli uh, public responded? It is hard to tell. I think that a bit like the American public, it is uh, very much polarized and it's very balkanized. It's media, it's very balkanized. The majority of Israelis, according to every poll, do not support the legal revolution. Um, thus far, however, the protest against it is mostly concentrated in the, those who were the supporters of the previous coalition. That is, people are usually self-identified as secular middle class, mostly Ashkenazi, mostly in urban spaces. That has been the most of the protest against the um, the current coalition has been mostly from the voters of the so-called center and the center left. The it, There doesn't seem to be any tectonic shift in terms of members of the Likud or voters of the Likud or settlers, parties even less so, voicing protest against it. There have been a few ministers in the Likud party who have ties to the high-tech industry who have occasionally commented that they support potential negotiations or moderation um, to moderate the uh, legal revolution of the current coalition, but there hasn't been any mass movement or any shift in the support of the coalition, which leads me to assume, and I may be wrong, but my own assumption is that the coalition will be able ultimately and will pass the set of judicial so-called reforms that it's planning on passing. And then why don't we end on this? Um, what does that mean for Israeli law uh, or the relationship between Israel and Palestine, if it does succeed in passing the, the, these reforms? Um, as I mentioned last time we talked, the Israeli Supreme Court is not particularly progressive, but been in the framework of Israeli politics, it's one of the more liberal institutions. And it has been often the only institution defending the rights of minorities, of human rights groups, of Palestinians, of LGBTQ um, people, and also of Palestinians under the Israeli occupation, though far less in the latter case. The dismantling of the judicial independence, the appointment of um, Supreme Court judges who will be now all appointed by the coalition or the passing of another law that is going to prohibit the Supreme Court from uh, overturning legislation is one of the laws that is currently in discussion. All of that will mean that there will be no legal defense of any kind against the ruling coalition. There will be no ability and no resort for any minority. For example, if the Israeli parliament would pass a law that prohibits Arab parties or Palestinian parties from running to parliament, there will be no resort to overturn this decision. If there will be a decision that prohibits recognizing non-Orthodox conversion um, in Israeli law, there will be no legal authority that will be able to overturn it. If Palestinians in the West Bank will want to protest the occupation of their private lands by settlers, there will be no authority to which they can appeal. So what it will de facto mean is radical expansion of the power of the um, executive and of parliament. And usually it's most likely that the main targets of it will be minorities. Uh, just actually a, a final question, because I know you study this. Are there any legal regimes that have a precedent for what is uh, looking to be done in history that you know of, or is this kind of a sui generis uh, you mean whether there are 
historical yeah, precedents to us. Yeah, like, you know, just because I know you study like the organs of a Reichstag and things like that. Yeah. Like what what is the form of legal regime that is being built here? Is there a precedent or not? I'm just curious. Yeah, about I that. think that the precedent and it's a, it's a precedent that is actively being invoked and studied by the right in Israel, that is Hungary, that is Turkey, and that is Poland. All those have been very openly been the models for the right-wing executive taking over judiciary and dismantling its independence in order to block any ability on limiting the power of the right-wing executive. I think those are the models. The son of the prime minister, Yair Netanyahu, himself traveled to Hungary to meet with Viktor Orban. There are many Israelis uh, on the right who invoked Hungary. So it is very much a clear precedent and a clear model for the dismantling of democracy while keeping formally there is a, there will continue to be a parliament, there will continue right. to be a vote, Authoritarian democracy, but right? there That's will be an authoritarian that. regime where there's no real, any limit on the power of the executive. And this uh, is a big so, shift from like the Reichstag that this was supposed to be initially over the course of the this seven years. This is a monumental years. shift. Yeah, it's, mean, a monu- it's a really big moment actually in terms of legal regime. I just wanted to clue in, in on This that. is by far the most transformative moment in Israeli history since the foundation in 1948 in terms of the restructuring drastically the relationship between citizens and their own state and the relationship between the subjects in the case of occupied Palestine and their own um, state. That is a radical transformation that basically abolishes independence of the judiciary and abolishes the capacity of any citizens to seek any protection from the state. That will be come to an end in Israel, will de facto become an authoritarian regime that even if the government decides not to um, take all these authorities to its hand, it will still be depending, the, the freedom of individuals will still be dependent on the goodwill of the government that can always change at will. The government is the but, political here. <laughs> exactly. And that means that essentially there will be no more civil rights because all of them will always be potentially invalidated by the decision of the cabinet. So liberal Zionism isn't doing great in 2023. No, it is not. <laughs> Udi Greenberg, thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on at such short notice. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. Thank you for having me. Thank you.